But I've been looking forward to uh, this message this morning as we come to you, or as I come to you with the book of James. And, and brethren, it's, it's been a little while, so just as a review, when we think about James, James is challenging the believers that he's writing to, and, and by extension, he's challenging you to live out your faith. He's challenging you to, to handle crisis, handle trials in life with the proper attitude and the proper mindset. He wants to increase your faith. He wants you to mature during trials, during tough times. And so James is a book about faith. And now James has been telling us, as we've gone through chapter 1, he's been telling us that when we go through times of trial and trouble in verses 2 through 4, that, that we should have joy, that we should have the attitude of joy. And now this, this joy comes about because of our faith in Jesus Christ, but we know that trials aren't random. We know that trials have a, a purpose. They're not indiscriminate. Trials produce endurance or steadfastness in your life. And over time, that steadfastness, that endurance produces maturity. And so there's a purpose in trials. And then in 5 through 8, he, he says that, look, if you, if you lack wisdom as you're going through this tough time or those tough times and you lack the understanding that you need to, to be able to just think about your, your setting and your surroundings and your situation with the, the right perspective, James says, pray for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom and, and ask God in faith, not doubting. So ask God, knowing that He sent this trial in your life for a purpose, for a reason. And just ask God's help to understand the trial, to glorify God in the trial. And that's verses 5 through 8. And then He continues onward, and He, he gives an example in verses 9 through 11, where He just talks about how one of the, the, the greatest uh, or the hardest trial has to do with money. And he gives an example of the poor man and the rich man and how both in life, whether you're rich or poor as a believer, or you have little or have much, both of those situations are a trial because the temptation in each situation is to focus on our wealth instead of focusing on God. And then James continues in, in verses 12 through 15, the last section that we talked about, he talked about how in every trial there's a temptation. It's the flip side of the coin. Right? And so within trials, there's a, there's a temptation to be dissatisfied. There's a temptation to, to turn to other things apart from God, right? to turn your focus away from Christ to the things of this world, to, to, to give up in the trial, to not endure. And so in that temptation, he warns us. He warns us that it's not God that's, that brings temptation. God is not evil, and he, he doesn't want you to fail. But we're tempted, and that the desire, that sin comes out of our own hearts. And he, and he gives, actually, the, the method of, of how sin works. He said that the sin begins in our, in our own minds, in our hearts, with desire. And that desire, in turn, becomes a, a concentrated desire, a concentrated lust, where we, we covet something so much that we are willing to sin to get it. And then, we, after coveting that, that's where the sin is in our heart. And after coveting something, what do we do? We, we act on that sin. And then when we act on that sin, we've, we've separated ourselves, right? We've fallen. We separate ourselves from God and from other people. 
And then if not repented of, that sin, James says, can lead to death. Well, that brings us to what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're talking about James verses 16 through 18. And the title, I've titled this sermon, God is Good All the Time. And it's amazing, as I was thinking about this sermon and I'm just meditating on the principles of Scripture, it's amazing how often, how easy that we can believe a lie. For example, at Christmas time in the U.S., and I'm not sure about Aussies yet, only been through one Christmas, but for Christmas time in the U.S., poinsettias are, are huge, it's massive. Everybody decorates their homes with poinsettias, businesses, right? They're everywhere. It's a beautiful flowering plant, has beautiful red leaves. It's just, it's just gorgeous. And that's a, it's a Christmas time phenomenon. I, I read somewhere that, that 35 million poinsettias are sold in the United States around Christmas time. So you can imagine just the volume. And they're, they're just beautiful. But what I grew up hearing about poinsettias when I was a kid was that you had to be very careful with poinsettias, that their leaves were very dangerous and very poisonous, and that you had to be careful with small children or animals, and they, they bit these leaves or ingested these leaves. They could even they get sick and even die. But do you know what? That, that's a myth. There have been studies out since the 1970s that scientists have been trying to dispel this myth. They've done studies and proved that the leaves and the flowering uh, part of the, of the plant have, have little to, to no toxicity. And so it's just, a, it's just something that we've accepted as a society. And even though all these studies and all this information has been readily available for, for decades now, the poinsettia plant still ranks in the top 10 of all plants that people call poison control centers about. So it's, it's easy, and it's easy for us to be, believe the lie or believe and be deceived about things. And so James is dealing with that this morning, and he's dealing with a common error that comes up when believers are facing hard times and trials. And what happens is, as they face tough, tough times, they question the goodness of God. And so James draws out two points here this morning in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 1, he basically gives these believers and and you a caution to not be deceived in verse 16, and then he gives a correction in verses 17 to 18, excuse me, and he says that correction is God is good. So let's go ahead and look at the text and we'll dig in. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good Thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. So first of all, James' word to these believers and to us is, do not be deceived. The implication are, is they were being deceived. Okay? Well, if you're being deceived, how does this fit in in the, in the context? Well, this is a bridge verse. He's talking about being deceived about, about temptation and sin and, and thinking that it comes from God when it really comes from their own sinful flesh. And then it's also a bridge into God's goodness. Don't be deceived about God's goodness. When we think about deception, who is deceiving us? Who is deceiving you as believers? Well, the ultimate answer is Satan, right? But he does it 
because in, in a subtle way, because Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once, right? He's not, he's not that little red bad angel over your shoulder whispering in your ear, as you see on the cartoons growing up. So, well, how does Satan influence you? Well, he influences you through his world, the world system that we live in. Because everything in our world opposes God the way it exists now in its fallen and corrupt state. 1 John 2, 15 through 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. Everything is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. All of these things that are in the world is not from God. And Satan seeks to, to tempt us. Right? He seeks to, to drive our attention away from God and His Word and His will. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God, and we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Because of man's rebellion, man gave up his right to dominion, and now Satan rules this world at this time. Right? Doesn't mean that God is still, God isn't sovereign, right? And Satan isn't allowed to do certain things within God's sovereignty. God protects his church, right? God still restrains evil in this world, but this is, this is Satan's time. And that time will, will not be complete until Jesus Christ returns to rule and reign and set all of his enemies under his feet. Even Jesus says in John 14, 30, as he's talking to his disciples, he says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. So Satan individually, he doesn't have the ability to tempt every single person. But what he does is he has this world system at his disposal. And so as we, as you live in this world, everything in this world is in darkness and opposed to the light. The movies, the TV shows, the politicians, the schools, they all teach a secular mindset, a secular worldview that is opposed to God, that even blasphemies His name, that makes light of sin and coming judgment and, and impugns God's people. So often believers believe the lie that this world is, is not black and white. The world likes to, to, to get us to think that everything is gray and muddled. But there are only two types of people in this world. 1 John 3, 10 says there's the children of God and there's children of the devil. So don't forget, brethren, that, that Satan is not omnipresent, but we live in a fallen world that, that seeks to conform you to its image. And unless you think you're very strong, flip over to Genesis with me. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And here we have a picture of, of the very beginning. Right? It's the very beginning and you have the perfect man and the perfect woman. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And when the woman saw that a tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that a tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate it. And she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then both of them were eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin covering. So, so even you see in, in a perfect setting with unfallen, right, people who are not corrupted by sin, they fell into sin. They believed the lie of Satan that what God had provided was not good enough. And you notice with Eve, she said that the tree was good for food. It was, it was the lust of the flesh. It was the light to the eyes. It was, it was the lust of the eyes and desirable to make one wise and the boastful pride of life. You see, Satan's schemes haven't changed. You see, Eve doubted God's goodness and he believed Satan's lie that what God had forbidden was better. And so, brethren, don't be deceived. So we know who's doing the deceiving, but how does he deceive us? How does he deceive you? Well, he deceives us because indwelling sin is still present in our bodies. And we'll still have that sinful flesh until Jesus Christ returns and we receive a a new glorified body incapable of sinning. Though we are not captive to our sin anymore, we've been freed from sin's power over us, we still at times will struggle with sin because sin still resides in our bodies. But the mature Christian... He loves Jesus more and more. He submits more and more to the Holy Spirit, to the, to the Word of God in obedience. And the Holy Spirit produces more and more fruit in his life. And he looks more and more like Christ. But what is, what is sin? So when you think about chapter 1 and you think about what James is saying and he's talking about don't be, don't be tempted or, or when you are tempted it's from inside and you can't blame God for that because God's not evil. Well, what is sin? Well, well, sin in its basic sense is, is rebellion against God. Because you think about Adam and Eve, right? They were dissatisfied. She was dissatisfied with what God had given her, and she wanted something more. She wanted something different. It's the same for you, right? It's the same for us. We're dissatisfied with what God has given us. Right? Because only God is good. God gives only good and perfect things, as James says in just a moment. Right? And that manifests itself with grumbling and complaining against God. So it's rebellion when we, when we are dissatisfied with what God has given us. And we want something different. And we want something more. It's rebellion. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 Paul is speaking in the whole chapter, the whole first part of the chapter, excuse me, verses 1 through 11, about the Israelites and their immorality and their rebellion and their idolatry and, their mora- and, and all the things going on with them in the desert. And Paul says, now these things happen to them as an example. They were written for our instruction. See, the Israelites, they grumbled and complained against God's provision they grumbled and complained against His direction, His will. They continually rebelled against God's authority over their lives. You think about it, God miraculously provided manna, bread from heaven. It fell from the sky every morning, a daily miracle. Deuteronomy says to, to test them and, and teach them to see if they would understand that, that man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that falls from the mouth of God. That God wanted to teach them to, to, to depend on Him 
on a daily basis. But yet they got this manna in Numbers 11. They, they complained and they grumbled and they moaned, oh, we need something else besides what God has provided. All oh, that we'd had fruits and vegetables and meats like we had in Egypt when we were in slavery. You see, sin is rebellion against God. We grumble and we mumble and we complain. And, and that's the danger when you're in a trial, right? Rather than remaining steadfast and, and enduring that trial with a, with a joyful attitude, you look around at others and you, you compare yourself and your situation and you, you grumble and you complain and you rebel. But there's another aspect about sin is that you, when you covet, when you want something else, when you're dissatisfied with what God has given and you want something else, Yet covetousness, that, that covetousness, is, that greed, is a, it makes you an idolater. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, that, that greed, that coveting equals idolatry. When you want something other than what God has provided and you are willing to sin to get it. It closely follows grumbling and complaining. It's a dissatisfied heart, is a rebellious heart. And a rebellious heart is an idolatrous heart. You see, something or someone will always have your affections. If it's not fully God, then you're an idolater. Look, I, I love my wife. I love my kids. I'm so blessed, so thankful for them. But if I love my wife and my kids more than I love God, then I am in sin. Right? Our affections, first and foremost, should always be God. And if we worship something, if we love something more than God, we're idolaters. And that's what, Paul, that's, what, that's what James is talking about here, about being deceived, because he's talking about giving in to that temptation. And if you give in to that temptation, then, you, then you're demonstrating that you, you don't really understand God's goodness to the fullest extent that you, you should. So he's offering this, this caution so not only does James offer a caution, but he, but he offers a correction. And that correction is, he says, remember that God is good. Look down in verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So he's talking about God's good and perfect gifts, Right? He says, the, the first of all, when he says, the, he says every good thing, the word there for thing in the, in the NASB, sorry, in the, in the Greek is, is gifts. He basically says every good gift and every perfect gift. He repeats it twice. The word is different, and that's why there, there's a variation in the English. But both words mean gifts, just, just different ways to look at gifts. The first word there, everything or every gift, it emphasizes that every action of God's giving, everything that He gives is Good. It's emphasizing the, the lavish generosity of the giver. It's reflected in his attitude towards giving. Paul uses this word for giving in Philippians 4.15. He talks about the Philippians and he says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Some of the, the generosity of the Philippians and their, their giving towards the ministry and to support the work of Paul. So we're talking about, talking about lavish attitude in his, in, his, in his giving towards us. And we're talking about the character of God. 
And then he says they're good gifts. Now, the word for good there means useful or beneficial. And listen to this, it's good in its effect. Right? We can't always know the effects of God's gifts. But God's gifts always reflect His nature. He is good and His gifts are good. Look, God, God loves to give good gifts to His people. He gives lavishly and freely because He's good. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. But His gifts are good in their effect. They, in other words, they always will accomplish His will for you. Romans 8, 28, as we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And then Paul continues and he says the purpose is that He predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. So sanctification and holiness resembling the character of Christ inwardly and outwardly is Christ, is God's goal for you. So what is beneficial to you, what is good for you, is what's good for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's why we, we go through trials, and you can go through trials. You can say, this trial is good for me, even though it's painful. Because that trial, what? Produces endurance, steadfastness. And that steadfastness produces maturity. Right? So when God gives you something, and He's given us all things, and the, all things that He's given us are good... And they're good in their effect, the goal that God has for them. That's a mature way of looking at things. So you think about it, I love my wife, and what a blessed gift. I definitely married up, as we say in the South. Now, for those of you who've been married a while, you know that marriage is a, is a sanctifying or has a sanctifying effect, right? No one knows us quite as well as our, our spouses, and, and we interact with each other, and we're confronted with our own selfishness and sin. So my wife is, is, is good for me in that she's a companion and, she, and I love her and she's wonderful, but she's also good for me in a sanctifying sense because she loves the Lord and, and she challenges my sin. She challenges my selfishness, right? So things are good for us in their effect. We think about good gifts and a lot of times we only think about it from a, a human perspective. Oh, I get a brand new car. Oh, that's good. Well, trials are good because God is good and He means them for a purpose. But not only is a good gift, God gives good gifts, but He gives perfect gifts. Because perfect gifts come from what? A perfect and good God. Well, the word there for perfect means complete. In other words, it's, it's the recipients lack nothing to meet their needs. Think about Matthew 7. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father? Right? So my wife and I took our kids to Simulfora Beach a couple weeks ago. We got some fish and chips, got a chance to get out. We let them run around, told them they couldn't get in the water. Right beside the, the, the fish place there, the fish shop at Simulfora, is a lolly shop. And in this lolly shop, they have candy from the United States. And one thing I like to do with my kids is get them a special treat, and I get them these ring pops. They're ring lollies. You, you, it's got a little ring. You slip it on your finger, and it has a candy in the shape of a little, little diamond, and, and you, you, know, you suck on it. And I get it for them because I used to love those when I was a kid, and it, it's, a, it's a good memory for me, and I want them to have that good memory. And when you think about giving things to our kids and enjoying that good day, right? we're, we're providing for them. We make sure they have the right clothes. We're, we're protecting them. 
We're giving them food to eat. And we give them special treats because we love them. No other reason that they enjoy it. Then we also protect them. We keep them out of the cold ocean. It was a windy day that day. We let them play on the beach, but they couldn't go in the water because we're protecting them. They might not fully understand it, but it's still good for them. And God is pictured as our Heavenly Father, and He deals with us in the same way. He knows what's good for us. He gives us things just because we delight in it for no other reason. But He gives good and perfect gifts because He meets our needs. He knows what's good. He knows what's perfect because He is the definition of goodness. Right? You think about Genesis 1 and 2 in the, the creation account. Seven times God's goodness was emphasized, even above His, His power, because God is the definition of goodness, and He only gives good gifts. He only sends good things your way, but it's good from the proper perspective. Doesn't mean it won't be hard. Doesn't mean life won't be tough. We won't go through sadness and grief. After all, we live in a fallen world. But God is good. You know, when we picture God, we should picture Him as a good God. He gives us everything we need so you're not lacking. His, good, His gifts are good in their effect. They're good in their completeness. But how often do you look around and, and you want more and you see more? The human eye is never satisfied. Lord, help us to say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. You see, the secret to living in, in poverty or prosperity, Paul actually tells us that secret. How can we be content? In Philippians 4.13, the, the secret to living in poverty or in prosperity is, is I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. See, through God's grace, you can learn contentment. How often have you heard that verse and it, it, it's used where it shows somebody climbing a mountain or, or you know, canoeing across a river, I can do all things. In the context of Philippians, it's talking about I can do all things because I, I've learned to be content. I can face life's troubles, life's, life's ups and downs, and I can be content in the grace of God. I can do it because God gives me strength. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about con contentment. Contentment is learned, right? As we walk with the Lord and we spend time learning about His goodness and His faithfulness. But James continues and he says, Not only is every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He also says that the God is immutable. There's a good $10 word for you. Press your, press your nana, your grandmom. Mm, immutable. God is not changing. You see, the Father of lights, God is the creator of all heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, the things we look up in the sky, and, and they really don't change very much. Right? They might move across the sky, but they don't change in their, in their essence. 1 John 1.5 says that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. You see, the Father of lights is a Jewish expression. It celebrates light's origin in God and His care for His people. And the coming down means that it's continually coming from His hand upon those that are not worthy. Well, when He talks about God the Father, He says there's no variation. 
Right? There's no change or alteration from an established course. God is absolutely consistent. He's consistent with His character and nature, and you can absolutely depend on that. What a blessing that is. He said there's no shifting. Benji was talking to me the other day, and he was talking to me about Peter shifting. Now, we don't use that term in the United States. And we, we would shift a box, like slightly, or shift in our seats. It's small movements. And Benji kept saying, oh, Peter's shifting. I'm like, what is he shifting? What is he talking Shifting? Shifting? But, you know, in Aussies, Aussies use that term shifting as in a moving house. You know, I'm shifting from one house to another. I'm moving. In the United States, we'd say, well, a person's moving, or we're going to help them move. I'm not going to help them shift. Well, the same idea is here is that with God, there is no shifting. There's no moving. It's, he's not like the shadow of the sundial, where it, if you put the sundial and the sun moves, the shadow turns. With God, there is no turning. There's no, there's no moving. There's no shifting. He doesn't change. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A few years ago, Beth and I had the privilege of going to my childhood home and uh, as we were visiting Eastern North Carolina, and I moved away from that home when I was 13. But what was interesting was as I looked in the backyard, my dad and I had set up a basketball goal. We, we took a big round uh, pole, treated, treated lumber, and we cemented it in the ground. I was about seven, eight years old, so I was helping him. And then we put up a basketball goal, the backboard and the rim. It was still there. That backboard and that pole and that rim are over 30-something years old, and they're still there. I was amazed. It, it just looking at that, that, that basketball goal and just thinking, wow, you know, all the, all the good times I had with friends playing basketball and that. Well, you know what? Eventually, that goal is going to come down. Storm, time, it's not going to last forever. Well, God does. Right? God is the same. He never changes. His essence, His nature, His perfections cannot be altered. His immutability is closely related to His excellence of character as well. So James mentioned here that God does not change because He's tying God's immutability into God's goodness. He's bringing them together. And so he's saying if God doesn't change, then again, God as a good God never changes. Right? What a great truth that God is good. He doesn't get tired of you. You're tired of your failings. Right? He loved you enough to, to down a cross for your sins. Like even the most stable of things, the stars and the moon, will eventually be totally changed. But God's goodness toward you, because He's a good God, will never change. Look down at verse 18. Excuse me. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be the kind of firstfruits among His creatures. So why does James bring this in? Because he wants to emphasize that a good God has given you the best gift ever. Right? He says, first of all, that then the exercise of His will, it's talking about God choosing you. Literally, it means when He decided, He acted deliberately to choose and save you. What a comfort, right? 
the doctrine of election is not meant to be divisive. It's meant to be a, a comfort to saints. God chose you right before the foundation of the world that He loved you. So when we think about what God has provided for us and we become discontented in that, it's in a direct affront to, to, to God Himself. When we choose to sin and we choose, choose what God has forbidden, we're saying that what God has forbidden is, is better than what God has given us. And what we're really saying is that what God has given us is not really good, and therefore God is not really good. Now, we might not deliberately and intentionally say that in our minds, but, but that's the, the outcome, that's the effect of what we're saying. He's given us the best gift ever. He chose us. In the counsel and the purposes of God, His will is the source and basis for your new life in Christ. But not only did He chose you, it says in verse 17 that, I'm sorry, verse 18, that He brought us forth by the word of truth. He, he gave you new life. He brought you forth. The word here in Greek has to do with being born. That's why we say we're born again. We, we've been regenerated. You see, no child has ever been born by its own will and its own plan. Right? John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Colossians 2, 13, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. See, regeneration is the, the miracle of God with which the person is given new life. He's justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We can't see it, but you experience it. And you experience it in, in the transformed life that you have. or A, a, a new love for God and His people and, a, and the, the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in your life. You see it that way. So you... In this best gift, God chose us. He gave you new life. But look at God's gospel. He said that He brought us forth by the word of truth, the message of truth, as opposed to the lies of Satan. You see, this is the divine means used in your salvation. It's a divine message. It's a message that, that proclaims truth. Truth is reality as God sees it. The condition of man and his need for a Savior. That gospel is the perfect life, the, the substitutionary death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Just know that God's word is truth, will not return void. Isaiah 55, 11, it, it softens hearts and it hardens hearts. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and, and hearing the word of Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit illuminates the mind so that unbelievers and, and, and we can understand, unbelievers can understand truth, and then as believers, we can understand God's will, His ways, His nature. See, God acknowledges a person's belief in the gospel when He credits to Him the full righteousness of His Son. See, it's God's message, God's gospel. So God chose, God gave you new life, God sent the gospel message to you. And then you have God's first fruits, first fruits. 
verse 18, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The feast of first, first fruits, say that real fast, Leviticus 2.12, the first fruits were, were the first uh, bounty, the first part of the harvest that would come through, and you would take these, these first fruitings and you would bring these to the Lord as, a, as an offering to the Lord for His use, but trusting that God was going to give you what's coming, that the rest of the harvest would, would be just as bountiful and good as those first fruits offered to Him. So as a, as a trust in the Lord, and an appreciation to the Lord, an offering to the Lord for His use. So salvation for us is the result of God's choice and His, and His regeneration. And, and the first fruits that James is talking about is, is believers. They're the first fruits. They've been set apart for God's purpose. Now specifically, James is talking about these, these Messianic Jews that lived during James's day. They were the, the first fruits of, of what is to come, right? I mean, within 2,000 years, how, how much has the church blossomed and, and grown because of their ministry and God's working in their lives and, and the gospel going forth? They're the first fruits. They're the best. So when James says that believers are the first fruits, we, we ourselves are still the first fruits, still live in the, in the church age. There's still more to come. We've been set apart for His use. We're the best. The first fruits are always the, the best of the crops. We're the best. The first fruits are the best. Think about the best gift you've ever, you've ever been given. I remember when I was, I was roughly seven, eight years old, and I remember I wanted something so bad. It's one of those things you want so bad you can taste it. You know, you're so bad that you, you dream about it. And as we approached Christmas, I, I loved Transformers. It was the 80s after all. I loved Transformers, but I loved the Dinobots. They were, they were robots that could turn into dinosaurs. I mean, what, what could a, a kid, a, a boy love? You know, dinosaurs and robots. You got both. Well, I, I, had these, uh, I had these on my mind, and I wanted them for Christmas, and my parents, bless, uh, bless their hearts, they, they actually found all of them, and I got all of them for Christmas. I was amazed. I was excited. It was glorious. But on, as, as we're children, we focus on material possessions, and we focus on those things that, that seem to make us happy. When we grow and we learn and we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we see that the greatest and best the gift of all is God coming to die for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's the best gift. It shows God's goodness. The re redemption of us, of you, shows that God is good. God is good in His very essence, and every aspect of His, of His nature is demonstrated in His goodness, His mercy towards us because He's good, right? Even His justice because He's good and He, and he can't tolerate sin. Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus thirty three nineteen. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Goodness is... A, is is the basis, is the, is the funnel for all of God's attributes. I love a quote by Stephen, Stephen Charnock. He's a Puritan preacher. He says, In giving us His Son, He gives us Himself. He is our God. 
In Christ, we inherit all things. What more could divine goodness do for us? What more could God give us than Himself? James is writing to these believers to, to caution them to not be deceived by the world and its ideas about, about the things in this world. To not be deceived about God's goodness and His love for you. And James offers a correction, emphasizing that we should remember that God is good. He knows that how often do we forget? How often do we forget? When I was a youth, I went to this church camp repeatedly uh, every year for a week. And the way they would begin their, their services, and the way they would end their services every day was the same way. They would, the leaders would stand up and, and yell out, God is good! And then we would respond with, all the time. And then we would say, and then they would say, all the time, and we would say, God is good. Brethren, do not be deceived by Satan in this world. Nothing forbidden by God is good for you. It will only bring heartache, pain. Sin separates, sin always separates. Sin destroys, sin always destroys. Let your faith be strengthened today as you ponder the riches and depths of our great God. Because when we have a right belief, it produces right actions. God's what James wants, our, our faith to be demonstrated in our lives as we respond to trials we're to not be deceived. We're to instead focus our attention on the goodness of God. Pray that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, that you'd be convicted of sin, of your lack of righteousness, and the future judgment to come. That you would confess your sin and repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only means of salvation. For those of us that do love God, we, we want to show our appreciation and our, our thankfulness and boast on what God has done. You know, there's good boasting. Son came to me last night as I was studying this and I gave him a, a, a pretzel and I said, don't, you know, don't tell your sister. I said, don't go and brag. And he said, what do you mean brag? And I said, well, bragging is, is something you get and, and something you have and something you've done that, where you're, you're rubbing it in the face of somebody else. You're drawing attention to yourself and what you have. And I said, there's good bragging. And he was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, there's good bragging where we, we brag and we boast on what God has done and what God has given us and, what, and who God is. And I said, you can, you can boast about how God has given you food and family. Right? He's given you a, a church family and the beautiful sky. And I was pointing to different things. See, we respond to God's goodness with a thankful heart and a grateful heart and a content heart. Let us praise Him. Let us be content. And let us give Him the glory and boast in Him. And all God's people said, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Let's pray. Lord, truly You are a good and, and wonderful God. How often we forget Your goodness and Lord, we're tempted to turn away from the things you provided for us in your goodness, those good gifts, those perfect gifts. 
Lord, help us in the midst of trials, as we're, we're being pressed down hard, help us to, to turn to you. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Help us to remember that the trials are not without purpose. Help us to remember your goodness and how you're working. Give us the strength to endure those trials, that you may be glorified and we may develop endurance ourselves, that we may be mature, bear fruit in our lives. Help us to be witnesses to the testimony of of how the Holy Spirit works in each individual life and and us as a church. Father, help us to, to love you and obey you. Lord, I thank you again for your grace, your mercy, and your goodness in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.